Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. All right, so let's keep this let's keep this story going. I know eventually we will get to David, but I've got a few more points. I think we need to kind of understand about Saul and Samuel because they do. They do have significant uh, impact in the way that David uh, interacts in his culture. And I think that that's also really important. Like the culture of the nation is is really is really um, framed by leadership. And that's why having, quote, you know, good leadership is important because their heart, their philosophy, their approach impacts the way that the culture the nation uh interacts with one another you can have you can have leadership that divides people you can have leadership set that unites people you can have leadership that develops out of you know develops fear and you got you can have leadership that develops community and love and uh i think you have both in this story and that's why i think it's important that we understand the culture in which Saul and Samuel were developing and the culture that David and Samuel and others uh, develop. Now, uh, Saul, uh, I think where we left off last time, Saul had uh, liberated a town that was under tremendous stress and unjust um, attack. And he comes back to the nation, back to the nation of Israel, so to speak. Um, and he sets up a palace and he steps in as king because at this point, because of the way he led the people and because he brought about a great victory, all the elders came in behind him. All the tribes were like, yes, he is a great leader. Yes, we understand why God chose him. Yes, he's our king. And so he stepped into that leadership role. And I'm sure he did so with the <clears throat> tribe of Benjamin leading the way. And I, we'll, we'll see that in, um, I think it's in First uh, Samuel 15, where he talks about the elders of, of, his, of his people waiting for him back at the palace. So I think his father was very much involved in interacting the business of politics under his son as the king. And I, I think that that lent to Saul's constant battle with not being a disappointment to the nation, not letting the family down, not letting the tribe uh, of Benjamin take a back seat. He he stepped into politics without any political training, and I think he got his political training uh, from from the elders of Benjamin, and and they weighed heavily. His family weighed heavily in his in his uh, cabinet, which is not unusual. Uh, especially in a tribal agrarian society. And we see that literally all the way through the life of David. And back, uh, all, I mean, we're, we're hours away from getting there, but when David uh, leaves the city of Jerusalem, when his, when his son Absalom takes over, there are people from the, from the tribe of Benjamin that are still upset about the fact that they lost their job, that they lost the ability to rule. And they cursed David on his way out of the city. So anyways, all that 
uh, to layer in the fact that I think Saul is, you know, he sets up his palace, he sets up his cabinet, he sets up uh, leadership from his tribe, from his family. And, and honestly, things are going really well. Saul takes on, uh, he gives his son, Jonathan, uh, some, uh, I think a thousand men. I think we're in first uh, Samuel 13 at this point. And he gives himself 2000 men and they basically go out and they start tearing down or attempting to tear down these garrisons that the Philistines had set up small forts, towers, uh, that they would set up in the, in the nation of Israel. And they would keep, you know, whatever, uh, a number of troops there as a way to intimidate. They'd send out raiding parties, steal the, steal the grain, steal the livestock, feed themselves, uh, steal money, send it back to the, to the nation. It was just a way to discourage the people of Israel from ever rising up in mass and coming against them. And of course, Saul had just, you know, put together an army and went and brought justice to this other city. So the Philistines were, were aware that Saul was now taking a, a more active leadership role, and they would have, of course, wanted to crush his optimism. They would have wanted to politically put him down in a place where they could, in essence, create him as a puppet, as a servant king, which most nations would do at that uh, in that time. They would threaten, they would lay siege to a city, they would uh, create such an environment that the leadership would say, all right, listen, we don't want to die. So what is it going to cost us to keep our positions of leadership, but actually just do what we're told? And and those were terms of negotiation, right? Terms of peace, uh, negotiating peace. And Saul, uh, uh, the Philistines would have expected Saul to do that. But instead, Saul puts together these little, uh, you know, this thousand man group and this 2000 man group, and they start going around the country. And Jonathan takes on a garrison that had been in place for a while and was considered quite a stronghold. And with a thousand men, he defeats them. And that gets everybody excited. So then he goes to join his father and combine their armies to go do some things. And, and the Philistines did not take kindly to being attacked and they did not take it, uh, as, as like a little blip on the radar. Oh, look, you know, Johnny boy came over and attacked our little tower and took it over. Well, that's fine. I mean, you know, they have a king now, so we probably should just back off. They put together their national army, which in scripture talks about 120,000 people, which could be true. It, it, It could be the actual number, but sometimes writers would just pick a big number because there were a lot of men there. That's all they know. There was just way more of them than there was of the Israelites. And so as this army is um, what they call amassing, right? They, they pick this, this uh, plateau that overlooked a valley. And along this long valley is where Saul had been marching with his men and you don't amass an army of that size without a lot of time. And that's one of the things that I think we often miss when we just read the story. We miss the amount of time that this took. So as the Philistines are putting together this army and they're starting to put together their encampment along this ridge, this huge 
plateau that overlooks a valley. This is, you know, this is a valley where Saul and his men are, are marching and his men are seeing this. And it's quite clear that there are way more Philistines showing up. Like at first, I'm sure they were kind of excited, like, yeah, like, oh, cool. Like, we're going to we're going to go to war like we Jonathan just just beat him up in, you know, at this garrison. And now, you know, they've now now it's our turn. Now it's our turn. Look at him. Look at him. We're going to go get him. We're going to go get him. And then day after day, there's more and more showing up. And the 2000 guys that were with Saul just started dropping off. The Bible talks about them like literally hiding in bushes, uh, just, you know, stopping for a drink and not moving again, just sitting there on the by the roadside, uh, hiding in, in ditches, finding little caves. They weren't real interested in being part of the part of the army anymore. The victory that Saul had won was awesome, but there's a lot of Philistines. And many of these guys in the Israeli army had had dealt with Philistines, had been beat up by Philistines, had been humiliated by Philistines, had lost crops and and women and livestock to the Philistines. They, they did not. They were like, you know what, uh, maybe maybe we should look, negotiate for terms of peace. And so they just kind of left Saul on his own. And by the time Saul got to this little oasis, he sets up his little hammock under the pomegranate tree, and he's pretty bummed out. And I think, again, this goes to that those concepts of self-rejection. He didn't see himself as a great leader. He had always kind of wondered why God had anointed him. He wondered why God would love him. He wondered if God really knew him. Because the people who did know him, his family, his friends, he had disappointed them in the past. He had let them down. He wasn't the greatest husband, the greatest father, the greatest leader in the family. And now he's leading a nation. Like when you're, when you have self rejection, when you have those, those kind of what sometimes people call them self doubts, but it's really a doubt as to whether or not God loves you. It's whether or not God is there for you. And, and it's really a lack of an awareness that God is in you and God is with you and he never, ever leaves you. So when you lack that kind of awareness and you start to think negative thoughts, you get into quite a spiral and you end up in a pretty bummed out place, a place of depression. And that's where Saul had kind of spun himself. He's looking at an army of maybe 600 people left. He started out with 3,000. He's got 600 guys, and he's every day there's more and more Philistines showing up. Every day his scouts come back saying, you know, the dust cloud of chariots arrived and the dust cloud of the donkeys and the dust cloud of more armies and the dust cloud of the, of, of the artillery and the number of, of archers and the number of of foot soldiers. I mean, it's just, it just goes on and on and on every day. And Saul's just thinking, I, I'm going to die. Like this is, this is my fate. This is what God has, has laid out for me. He chose me because he actually hates me and he wants to kill me. Now, Jonathan and his armor bearer, this is, you know, a classic, um, story about Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer, 
they see this whole thing happening and Jonathan has that inspired thought, right? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he comes up with a plan. He's like, hey, I have a plan. You and I are going to go climbing up this, uh, uh, climbing out or walking out into the valley, sorry. And if, if the sentries, if the guards of the Philistines say, hey, come on up here, then we know that God is with us and he has put victory in our hands. So we will climb up and we will, we will start the battle. If they, if, uh, if they mock us or whatever and tell us uh, to go away, uh, then we'll, you know, then we'll go away. We know that, that God is not with us or it's, it's, it's a crazy plan. Bottom line, crazy plan. I know I should be reading this directly out of scripture, but I'm, I, I purposely am not because I literally, it would take me so much longer to get there. And I really want to get to Saul, but I wanted to get to this culture, right? This culture within Saul, this self-rejection that Saul has, because it impacts the way that he leads the nation. It impacts the culture in which he develops. Um, and it impacts, it, it just, there's a lot there. Okay. So move on, Bob. <laughs> My engineer is like, Bob, seriously, you're confusing me. I know. I know. I'm, I will get there. I will get there. My engineer's name is Bob, by the way. And, um, uh, he's a, he's a great guy. Um, uh, but he does, he does sometimes interrupt me too much. Uh, and sometimes I need it. So I let him, he has free reign to interrupt me. So periodically I may interact with him just because. So here we go. Jonathan gets this amazing plan. The Philistines see the two guys walking up and they laugh at them and they mock them and they're like, hey, come on up here uh, and, and take us on. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer crawl, literally the, the Hebrew makes it clear, they crawl on all fours. It's not like they walked up a path and, and you know, were able to stand, but they literally crawl on all fours up to the top of this plane up to this plateau. And when they get there, there's a group of guys that are camped out on the edge, right? They're the sentries. They're the guards. They're the guys that are watching these 600 Hebrews at the bottom of the, you know, in the valley at the oasis. And they're not impressed. Like they're just, they probably keep looking over the edge going, yeah, they're still on their way up. Crazy guys. Like, and they've had a discussion like, well, who's going to kill them? And and who's going to take them on? Because it was not unusual for battles to be fought in in one-on-one -on -one battles. Like entire armies would put all the weight of their of their victory into one person, and that person would be uh, the victor. So, or the loser. In which case, the rest of the army would then be responsible to either run or become slaves. So this wasn't like out of the realm of possibility that that they would just wait for them and be like, all right, well, they're still coming. They're going to be, you know, exhausted. They're going to be tired and dirty. And so they get to the top of the hill and at top of this, not even hill, I would call it basically a mountain. I mean, the, I don't know if you've ever climbed on all fours, but it takes a lot of effort. And, and a lot of strength to do such a thing uh, up a rocky hillside with, with dirt and and uh, stones kind of falling out from under you. You you know, your, your leg goes up three feet, but you actually only gain two feet because it slides about a foot down every time. So we get they get to the top. They're exhausted. 
but they're excited because they really believe that this is God's plan. And the Philistine guards send send a guy up to fight Jonathan, and Jonathan beats him. And they send another guy and another guy and another guy. And pretty soon they've got, you know, eight to ten dead Philistines laying around Jonathan, and Jonathan is still ready to roll. And then the the servant probably picked up one of the one of the swords of the Philistines and he starts taking on guys. And the rumors start spreading quickly through the through the army of the Philistines that basically there was a victor, that somebody from the the Hebrews sent a champion, and the champion took on the guard and and won and keeps winning. And basically you know, now there's now there's a pile of dead Philistines, and now that that's that's spreading. Like, not only did the did the champion win his battle, but he keeps killing us. Like, we we've, we've got to run, and so guys started to run. And as you run through a crowd, like it's very natural for other people to run with you, saying, "Why are we running? Why are we running?" And it says that that soon the whole army of the Philistines is put to flight. So all of this dust and uproar is going, and Saul asks his servant, he's like, what's going on? They're like, we don't know. He's like, count the men. So he counted the men. They're like, we got, you know, 598 people. He goes, who's missing? Uh, Your son and his servant. So he's like, well, let's go help them. And they put, you know, those 600 guys, what's left of them, pick up their weapons, which doesn't involve any metal. Remember, the only people who had a, a, a metal sword was Jonathan and Saul. And that they had to pay dearly for because the only people who could smelt iron were the Philistines. They had the, they had the monopoly on the market. They had the mines and they had uh, to, to bring the iron ore out. And they had the, the smelting ability to make, to make weapons. So this was a big deal. To defeat the Philistines meant that not only would they would they uh, you know drive them out of the country, but they would also be able to pillage all uh, the weapons that they would have. Not that all of them had iron weapons, but a lot of them did. Iron tips on their on their arrows, iron swords, daggers, uh, spearheads, sometimes entire spears. But that was one of the reasons why Saul always had a spear with him was because he was one of the only people. In, the, in his nation that had a metal spear that could do this. So they all chased the Philistines, and it is a huge win, huge win. Crazy, miraculous, insane, so many more details. Saul wins. But it's really Jonathan who won. But Jonathan gives the victory to his father. But when you when you have self-rejection issues, even when people compliment you, even when they when when they do the you know work in essence for you and they do a good job and and in a, and you get credit for it internally you say things to yourself like i don't deserve this i didn't earn this uh this wasn't fair like you'll take the accolades you'll take the uh you know the promotion you'll take the blessing but internally you're you don't have the confidence because you don't feel loved you don't you don't believe you deserve what you're getting so there's this great victory and and everybody goes back to the cities and they they 
celebrate Saul and Jonathan and everything's going great. Then we come to First uh, Samuel 15 and Saul gets another assignment. He gets this from Samuel. Samuel comes and says, listen, you need to go take on the nation of the Amalekites. You need to wipe them out because... Well, he makes it like a tit-for-tat thing. I, I just don't think God operates that way. But he says, well, you know, they were, in essence, mean to the nation of Israel, to the Hebrews, when they came up out of Egypt. The Amalekites forced them to go around their their boundaries. They didn't, you know, they didn't give them water. They They didn't support what God was doing. So God wants you to wipe them out. Huh. This is one of those one of those times where you can read it and say, "See, God is evil. God keeps score. God uh, remembers what what you've done, and He comes back to kill you, <laughs> or or beat you up, or give you cancer, or whatever." And and man, there's nothing in the life of Jesus that makes that makes that concept something that you can consider. So when you read things like this, you have to say, all right, so what what does this look like if Jesus is my filter? So Saul gets this assignment. You need to go attack the Amalekites. You need to push them back. Why would I do that? Well, because the Amalekites have at some level, open themselves up to attack. And the, 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 um, what, the, not the weapons, Bob, not the weapons. You don't want the weapons. The, the instrument of the death that, that sin brings is going to be the people of God. So, at some level, you can say, well, well, then what you're saying is if you're one of God's chosen, you get to kill other people. But if you're not one of God's chosen, you don't, you know, you get killed by God's people. And it does, it does appear that way. It does look that way. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. I, I do understand why people look at it. And, and it's, it, it causes incredible destruction down through the ages, including even now. Incredible separation where people separate themselves and saying, well, we're of God, so therefore we can attack you. We're of God, therefore you need to die. We're of God. We're the right ones, and you're the wrong ones. And it's this whole crazy philosophy that says if I'm in the majority— I get to destroy the minority. I get to kill off the minority. If the mo- it's mob rules, and in in a mob rule mentality, quote majority rules mentality, it's like if we're bigger and stronger than you, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you've done. We've decided what you have belongs to us, and that includes your life. And we've decided your life isn't worthy, so we're going to wipe you out. Or we've decided your house, you don't you don't deserve your house, so we're going to burn it down. That is not the way of heaven. It's not the philosophy of heaven. It's not the leadership of love. So I look at this assignment and I think, man, what in the world was going on? Because I know... I know that this was not a tit for tat, like you offended me 
way back when, and now I'm going to take it out on your your wives and children that had no idea and no part of what happened to the Hebrews years and years and years ago. Now, maybe, maybe this is something, this is, this is where I have to land on this. God is speaking to Samuel and he says, things need to be made right between us and the Amalekites. They rejected the Hebrews on their way up from Egypt. They didn't give us support. There's a lot of bad uh, blood between the two nations. We need to make that right. And I wonder if Samuel just figured, well, that means we need to wipe them out. Because because, um, when God speaks, people interpret what it means based on who they are and what their experiences are. That happens even now. Like God speaks to you, and what do you do? You you're like, well, this is this is what I think He means. This is what I think He meant when He said. And we make we make life changing decisions on what we think we heard God say, what we think God may be indicating. So Samuel hears God say something like, we need to make things right with the Amalekites. And Samuel puts it through his cultural filter and says, well, the way we make things right is we wipe people out. I I don't know what Samuel's interpretation was. I do know what he told Saul. And I also am really confident that God doesn't hold grudges for 50 or 100 years, and then wipe out the people who had nothing to do with it. And there's something within the realm of the Amalekites that opened themselves up to death, that opened themselves up to what sin does, which is kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what is about to happen to them. So Saul puts together an army of, uh, you know, 200 thousand foot soldiers and 10,000 of them came from Judah and they go and they ambush and it's mayhem and Saul wins. Now, in the end, he ends up saving the king, which is not unusual. Again, culturally, that's the way things were done. Kings were often spared. Royalty sometimes was spared. You'd give them exile in your country so that potentially, sometimes politically, you would send them back to their people, but as a puppet. And they would have agreed to pay you tribute for the next 50 years, but in some way or another, they're still in power, but they really work for you. And, you know, they, they send you slaves every, every year and they send you army uh, uh, personnel for your, for your army so that their people die, not yours, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, he spares the king and a bunch of the cattle and the sheep and the, you know, the really good ones. And it's not really him who made that decision. It was various people within his army. A 200,000 person army is a lot of people to keep track of. And some of them just did their thing. And Samuel hears from the Lord. Hey, Saul didn't quite wipe out everybody like I was expecting him to. And it says Samuel was angry. This is in uh, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel was angry and he called out to the Lord. 
And the Lord said, uh, I just, you know, I just told you what he did. Basically, your reaction is your reaction. So Samuel gets up early in the morning and he goes after Saul and he finds Saul and Samuel and uh, Saul sees Samuel and he's like, the Lord bless you. I've done everything I've been told. And Saul, Samuel asked him, like, why do I hear cows and, and sheep? What, what's, what's that going on? And Saul's like, well, uh, the army, the soldiers uh, brought them from the Amalekites. They're, they're the best sheep and cattle that you can imagine. We're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. And he's like, but, you know, we destroyed everything else. And Samuel says, enough, like angrily. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Although you were once small in your own eyes. Now, this is not recorded from the night before. The night before, the Lord's like, Saul didn't do what I asked him to do. Samuel goes into this whole thing about the fact that, you know, this, this whole uh, attack on the, on the character of Saul. And he says, although you're once small in your own eyes, which again goes to the self-rejection concept, right? Here, Samuel is saying, listen, I, I know that you struggle with the fact that you didn't think you deserved this, but God put you over all the tribes of Israel. He anointed you king. He put you on a mission. He, he told you to take out these wicked people, to wage war against them until you wiped them out. I don't know if God actually said that, but it is something that Samuel thought God said. So that part I do believe. And he's like, why did you not obey him? Why did you pounce and, and uh, on the plunder? Why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul's response is, but I did obey the Lord. I find that fascinating. Because Samuel believes he made something really clear to Saul, and Saul believes that he did what he was told. When you hear the voice of the Lord, it is open, it, it's always open to, to interpretation. God's love of freedom gives you the freedom to interact with his words. Now, I know, I know people are like already going, oh, my God, Bob has lost his freaking mind. There's no way that you can mess with the word of God. And yet here we see it in the word of God that the word of God was being interpreted in different ways. Saul says, I did obey him. I went on the mission. I wiped everybody out. That's what you told me to do. Like, there's no coming back. The Amalekites are not coming back. I brought their king back. This is it. We took good cattle and, and sheep in order to sacrifice and devote them to the Lord. This is not a big deal. Like, I did what I was told. I obeyed. Samuel's like, you know, he freaks out. He just freaks out. He's like, the Lord doesn't care about offerings. He doesn't care about burnt sacrifices. You need to obey, you know, quote, heed, I mean, toe the line. Basically, Samuel has become incredibly religious. He's, this is, remember, now this is a man who raised rebellious, bribe-taking, uh, arrogant children. How, how did that happen? He was religious. He was, he was legalistic. He was, 
he was, um, you know, a law person, not a person of grace, not a person of relationship, not a person of communication. He was arrogant. And he was hurt that he lost his position that Saul was now in charge of. See, to me, when I see this interaction between Saul and Samuel, I see a man, Samuel, who is personally offended at Saul. And anytime Saul minusculely crosses what Samuel has decided is the absolute law of God, Samuel overreacts and calls forth judgment and cursing upon Saul. That's what I think. That's what I see here. I think Samuel decided to wipe out the Amalekites because as a religious, when you're religious minded, when you're legally, legalistically minded, you don't think in, in terms of, of uh, let's, let's figure out how we can do this with the least amount of collateral damage. You draw a hard line in the sand. You say, yes, I will destroy. We will, we will wipe them out. Every man, woman, child, cow, sheep, dog, goat, from the greatest to the smallest, we will have a great victory for the Lord. And the Lord's like, oh, that's not what I was thinking. But if God's a God of freedom, if God's a God who allows for choice, and I believe he is, and then you make a wrong choice and he takes that freedom back, then you then he, you, you never had the freedom. You, you never had freedom. If you can't make a wrong choice, then you're not free to make any choice. You're only free to make one choice. And if you don't make it, then it's taken back from you. A lot of us have worked for people like that, right? I've been in ministry, quote, for, you know, quote, ministry for a long time. I've been around people where, where you are given the freedom to choose as long as you choose right. And man, if you don't choose what the boss wants, you receive the wrath of the boss and they blame it on God. That's, that's what I see happening here. Samuel is freaking out because Samuel decided that he needed to be angry with Saul. That was Samuel's choice. That was Samuel's response to finding out that Saul didn't, quote, do what he was told. And when you work in ministry like Samuel did, there's and, and you hear the word of God, you know, you hear the voice of God often, then you start to think sometimes that your words are God's words and they should be obeyed without question. You lose the heart of God sometimes. I mean, what did the what did what did uh, Jesus you know tell the Pharisees? He's like, yeah, you know the law, but you don't you don't interpret it with the heart of God. You interpret it with the you know with the religious mindset. God's not interested in whether or not you obey; He's interested in your heart, and that's true now here in the Old Testament. God was not interested if Saul wiped out the Amalekites. He was interested in the heart of Saul. That's why he wanted Saul to be king, was because when he saw in Saul a heart that was after him, a heart that understood relationship, a heart that understood how to lead from a place of love. 
but he also struggled with the idea of that. He struggled with the idea that he was a, a man that could that could lead, a man that could be trusted, a man that deserved promotion and blessing. And and so here, you know, he runs into Samuel. Samuel freaks out and call, calls down curses upon him. And again, he blames that on God. God has says. It's 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 a terrible thing when people manipulate the love of God and turn it into a law that's been broken and now calls forth the wrath of God. And really, what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is experienced by the darkness. Darkness experienced the wrath of God because the wrath of God is the love of God that comes in and totally wipes out what? The darkness. To darkness, light is wrath. It is an unbeatable force that pushes against it and removes it every time. That seems pretty horrible. But what is what does the, quote, wrath of God do? What does the love of God do when it removes darkness? It replaces it with light. And that's what God always wants his people to do. He doesn't want us just to go wipe people out. He wants us to replace what, what, what evil is doing with light and with love. And that doesn't involve destroying people. It's it's that's his heart. I'm not saying uh, I'm saying a lot of things. I'm not I'm Bob. I know I know I know. My engineer's like, how far down this rabbit hole are you gonna go? I I hear you. I know I'm I'm down a deep one. We'll we'll hit more on this again in the story. I I can't I don't want to get that preachy because this is a great story. Because often, this is what happens in this story. People take this place where, where quote, God repents of ever making God uh, Saul king. And they say, you know, they take the, the basically the curses that Samuel calls out on them and says, you know, the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you today, has given it to one of your neighbors, to one who is better than you. To me, that does not sound like God. And then he says, oh, and the one who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not human being that he should ever change his mind. This is this is like such such a religious, ugly, prideful, arrogant thing to say. Samuel, Samuel looks at Saul and says today, you know, and, and the, you know, God has torn the, the nation away from you. And why did he say that? Is because Saul is desperately trying to repent and make things right. Remember, Saul already thought he did the right thing. He's like, I did obey him. I, I wiped, like, there's no coming back for this nation. And Samuel's like, no, you did it. Like, you're a complete failure. Complete failure. God totally rejects you. Now that goes right to the heart of Saul because Saul already feels rejected. He already doesn't doesn't believe that God ever should have chosen him. And now he hears from the man of God, you're a horrible person and you made one small mistake, but God doesn't look at it that way. He looks at it like a complete failure. Your whole life is a waste. I think I redlined on, I did. I redlined on that. (laughs) I got, got too excited. My producer will figure that out. So Saul is in desperate desperation, calling out to Samuel 
for repentance. He's like, please take me back with you. Please take me back with you. And Samuel's like, no, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you. Oh, my gosh. God doesn't lie. He never changes his mind. This is not true. This is not true. And, And Samuel would know this because if anybody knew the life of Moses, Samuel did. And there's several times where, quote, God made a decision and then God changed his mind in the Exodus. And you could look at God changing his mind and say, see, God lied. No, God loves mercy. God loves restoration. God loves when people repent so he can change his mind. And that's the God that's still God in the Old Testament as he was when you see him in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same God. Same character of God wrote the first covenant as wrote the second covenant. And I understand the second covenant is, quote, better than the first covenant, but it doesn't wipe out the old covenant. And and we can maybe go sometime into a little bit more on the covenants. But but out of convenience, a lot of people like to like to say, well, the second covenant wiped out the old the first covenant, not not the way the Jewish people look at covenants. That's not true. But it's convenient if you want God to be filled with wrath and anger in the Old Testament so that you can answer these questions easily. And the thing that I'm talking about here between Samuel and Saul is not an easy question to answer. I mean, you heard me humming and and hawing as I talked about it because it's difficult to talk about because it sounds like you're screwing with Scripture, but you're not. You're making God relational and relationships are complicated. You're making God loving, and love involves freedom and choice, and God allows that, and in essence, still loves us through it, even if we make the wrong choices. And that's the kind of God I think we want to live with. That's the kind of God we know. That's the kind of God we see in the life of Jesus. So Saul repents again, and he falls on his knees, which had to be humiliating, and he reaches out to Samuel. He's like, no, please let me go back with you. Let me go back to you before, quote, the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul knows that he sinned. Or, or, well, at this point, he does. I mean, he didn't when he was doing it. He's now aware of it, which is often the case in life, right? We just, we're going along fine. And then later through our interactions with heaven, it's like, oh wait, maybe I shouldn't have treated that person that way. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And we repent. We, we get a different perspective. That's what repentance is, right? It's that it's, it's the, the, when you break down the word, it's the idea of going to the penthouse. That's what repentance is. A lot of people think it means crawling through the mud pit, you know, the, the pig pit and, and humiliating yourself. But <clears throat> repentance is getting a higher perspective. <clears throat> and so Saul gets a higher perspective. He's like, oh, okay, I, I made one, I made one mistake, but, but 
you're making, you know, you're, you're telling me that God thinks I am, that everything I've done is a mistake. But please come back with me because my tribe is back there. The elders are back there. All of Israel is waiting for me at the palace. And if I don't come back with you, it's going to look like I'm a complete, complete failure. I just want to get right with God again. I want to worship with him. And in the verse 31, Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Do you see what happened there? That's forgiveness. Like you can't walk away from that verse. A lot of preachers do. A lot of preachers don't like that verse. Verse 31 of 1 Samuel 15. Because that means that God did forgive Saul and that the curses that Samuel called out on him weren't from God. And that even if they were from God, God would have changed his mind about them and restored everything back. Because that's what worshiping God does. It puts you in that presence of God. And in the presence of God is fullness of joy. In the presence of God is restoration and forgiveness. And that's where Saul went. And when Saul was in the presence of God, his life got realigned. Where all of the self-rejection, the self-hate, the lack of ability to be aware of God disappears. <clears throat> and the love of God overwhelms him. That repentance and that love in the presence of God is what that verse refers to. Saul went there and Samuel was with him and the elders were there because that's what they went back to, right? He's like, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. So all of the leadership went and worshiped with Saul. All of them saw him in the presence of God. All of him understood the forgiveness and love that God had for Saul. And all of that happened in the presence of Samuel. And what did Samuel do? His response. This is this is Samuel's response to being in the presence of God. This blows my mind in a sad way. Because I know people who are, quote, in leadership in it and in ministry. And I say, quote, because they are in leadership and in ministry. And, and they would have responded the same way. They're so calloused to the love of God and religion has so jaded them legalistic and legalism, pride, arrogance, whatever you want to say has so jaded them that every thing they do, they think comes from God, even if it's not loving. And that blows my mind. And Samuel blows my mind here. He decides to kill the king of, of the Amalekites and he wipes them. He wipes him out. And then <laughs> and then Samuel walks away from Saul. It says, then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul went to his house, to his home in Gibeah of Saul. And until the day that Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, or and it says the Lord, quote, regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. That's that's Samuel's perception of what God is. That's, you know, that God was upset, that he regretted making Saul king. He, but listen, we, got, we have to go back to that phrase. He left for Ramah. He did not go see Saul again. Samuel chose to break relationship with Saul, and Samuel decided that was what God had done to Saul as well. We have to be careful 
that we don't take our reactions and our responses to circumstances and put them on God. You decide that somebody is not worthy of love. And then because you're, you know, I'm not saying that you don't have a relationship with God. You do. And because of that relationship with God, you say, so God doesn't love them either. That's where you're wrong. That's where you need to step, you know, take a step back and say, whoa, what am I saying? I'm saying God can't love somebody. That is a lie. And that's what Samuel's saying here. I don't love Saul. God doesn't love Saul. I reject Saul as, as leader because he replaced me as leader. And I don't think he's as good a leader as I am. And I could, have, I could have defeated the Philistines better than he did. And I would have led the army in more unified manner than, I, than he did. And I'm a better, I'm a better, I would have, I should have been king. And because of that, God rejects Saul as well because he's a horrible person and makes bad decisions. I would have never made those decisions. And I have no doubt that Samuel was struggling with that. And I'm not saying he's an evil person for struggling with it. It makes sense to me that he would struggle with it. It's the fact that we never bring this into the contention of the story because it's just easier to say God hated Saul. Saul was man's choice and God wanted to bring his choice. No, 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 no. Look at the story. Saul was chosen by God. And so then you have to say, well, then God chose Saul because God was trying to make people pay for not wanting Samuel to be the, the, come on, people. Why are you messing around like that? Why are you doing these kind of mental gymnastics to make God this wrathful king, uh, leader that would just destroy people's lives? God doesn't operate like that. Good golly, Miss Molly. And we know we didn't operate like that because Jesus doesn't operate like that. Oh, I know. Okay, I'll get, let me get a drink. <laughs> My goodness. I know, I put the cup way over there. But I just got, I just, I couldn't stop, Bob. I just, I had to make that point. So I appreciate, I know, I'm sure you're listening and your earphones going, oh man, this is getting bad. Bob needs a drink of water. Well, I appreciate you telling me, I do. You're a great guy, but just, I just had to finish. I just had to finish because... We lose this point. We lose the beauty and, and, and precious blessing of choice and freedom that God gives us and the fact that he loves us anyways. In essence, he, he supports those decisions. Even if they're not anywhere close to his heart because he's like, all right, I still love you. You need to see my heart behind this. <sighs> Sweet Jesus. Okay, yes, I'm drinking. Here we go. There. I know it's half a bottle. I drink fast. I like water. Oh, I know that probably means I'm going to. Well, we're going to get going. Well, look, we'll we'll start first Samuel 16. How about that? I think that'll be good. All right. Give me a second. All right. So. uh, First Samuel 16. We see that the Lord, quote, says to Samuel, you know, how long will I mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. All right. So. How did this happen? If God restored Saul 
and and accepted God, uh, Saul's repentance when he worshipped him, then why is he replacing him? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> it's a fair question, I should say. Here's here's the deal. When when you sin, you open yourself up to the results of sin. And although uh, Saul had repented, and Saul, uh, uh, yeah, Saul had repented, and the Lord wasn't gonna, you know, destroy him and hadn't rejected him, the results of his choices, because of his leadership role, put him in a position where, um, where in essence God was like, you know, I, my goodness can override this if you want it to. But Saul continued to make choices to create an atmosphere of fear and culture of fear in the in the nation. His and 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 I'm not making this up. I just I paused here for for a second to let you know. It wasn't that God rejected him as king over Israel. What God was saying is, I'm not. I don't want what He's created to continue. Generation after generation after generation. And the choices He's making has opened Him up to the to sin, which is comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And sin is going to destroy Saul's ability to to have generation after generation after generation of king here in Israel. See, it's not this here. This is another deep subject. Hang on, Bob. Here we go. All right. So sovereignty, God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we're all puppets because there's only one way that this can work out. God's sovereignty is so big that he sees every possibility and every result of that possibility that could ever possibly happen. So regardless of your choice, none of your choices surprise God because they all, he already has thought or seen, interacted with every choice you could possibly make and the results of that choices. And he says, my goodness can still be there. So when Saul starts making choices to create a culture of evil and a culture of fear, Even though there's good in his heart, even though when he's right, you know, when he's in a place of worship, he connects deeply with God. He has put in motion a culture that God does not want to, it can't be sustained. It's not that God doesn't, I mean, he God doesn't want it for sure. He doesn't want a culture of fear, but God also knows the results of a culture of fear is that it can't last, is that it will be destroyed because it destroys itself. And so he sees that and he says, all right, we need to we need to anoint the next king because this what Saul is doing can't be sustained. The fear that he's creating can't be sustained. He's making choices to constantly reject himself. He rejects who I made him to be. He rejects the love that I've I've given him. He rejects the anointing that I put on him. I mean, it says that the you know that the spirit of God lifted from Saul. Yeah, <clears throat> not because. God was like, I don't want to hang with you anymore. It's because Saul kept pushing it away. We separate ourselves from God. God doesn't separate himself from us. 
And so Saul just keeps separating himself from God, separating himself from God. He's like, no, I, I can't accept your love. I can't live in your love. And then, and then out of desperation and depression, he'll connect to the heaven and he'll feel that love again and that anointing again. And that sets him right for a little while. But he, he, the pressures of life, man, I, I, I'm telling you, when you don't know who you are, you are so susceptible to, quote, the fear of man. Of making, you know, being a man pleaser, where you're just trying to make everybody happy. You're just trying to get some sense of of approval from somewhere, somebody, sometime. You're trying to put together some legacy that will last uh, into your future, and it just doesn't work. And this is why I know that this is what Saul's doing. It's because the second verse of of First Samuel 16 it says, "But Samuel says, how can I go?" to Bethlehem and choose one of the sons, of the, uh, you know, one of the, the next king out of the house of Jesse. He goes, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Yeah. That's the type of fear that, that has now permeated the nation. We see later that Saul's pattern in life is to walk around with his spear all the time. He, yes, he throws it at David twice. He throws it at his son once. But the the pattern is, the, the, the legend is, that this was not an unusual thing. That when Saul would get angry, out of pride and arrogance, and pride hides the fact that you don't feel loved, right? That's just another wall, another way that people hide the fact that they don't feel loved. It's one of the ways that they keep from being in community so that no one really knows them because if they know them, they wouldn't love them. So anybody who loves me, I can't really be connected to because if I really get connected to them and I'm really intimate with them, they'll reject me too. And I deserve to be rejected because I'm such a horrible person. Like this is the this is the insanity that, that self-rejection does for people. And Saul lived in that insanity, much like all of us, and it just gets magnified when you're in leadership and everybody expects you to be a certain way and you think, I've got to keep everybody happy. So one of the ways that Saul would lash out at people is he would literally chuck his spear at them. Now, I don't know if he always wanted to kill them, but he always wanted to intimidate them. So, I, you know, picture Saul with a spear around him, uh, you know, at his side all the time. Mostly as a walking stick, but everybody knew periodically he would chuck that thing. I mean, it's actually an amazing character if you picture it like in a movie. Like I, I, I totally see this guy with, with the you know, wavy hair and a trimmed beard. Really, I mean, I'm sure he looked amazing. It says he was good looking. He was tall and good looking. So I picture him very intimidating, taller than everybody in his cabinet. And he's carrying a spear. And you never know. If you say the wrong thing, you just might have to duck. And if you're headed down the wrong road verbally in front of Saul, he might like, you know, pick the spear up and maybe twirl it around a little bit in front of him or off to the side of him. Or if you're seated at a table, he might pick it up and maybe, you know, put it over his head and stretch it out a little bit just to basically say, you better be careful. 
Because what you're saying is not something that I think I'm going to like. Yeah, so there's a culture of fear. And we see it again in verse 4, okay? In verse 3, basically the Lord says to Samuel, listen, take a cow with you. Uh, if anybody asks where you're going, tell them that you're, you know, you're coming to do a sacrifice in the t- in the town of Bethlehem. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll, sh- you know, I'll show you which one of his sons to anoint. So, the, so Samuel, verse four, he goes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town tremble when they meet him, and they ask, "Do you come in peace?" I'm, I'm sorry, but. You want to talk about a reputation as a man of God and a culture of fear. Samuel shows up at Bethlehem, and there is such a culture of fear in the nation that they see a cabinet member of Samuel. Now, I know Samuel has not has chosen not to go see Saul since that fateful day back in who knows, you know, how many years ago that was in in first Samuel 15 he hasn't he's chosen not to go back to see him but he's still considered part of the cabinet of of Saul it's not like everybody who was a ruler alongside Saul stayed at the palace most went back to their tribes and they were just considered when they you know when they made decisions or if they worked out a um, a contract with a neighboring tribe or nation or or a market marketplace, Bob. That's not a marketplace. Um, traders, trade a trade route, like they spoke for the king. So what they did, you know, held more weight. So when Samuel shows up, they're thinking, "Oh my gosh! Like, is he here to kill us all?" Huh. Yeah. Why? Oh, because Samuel killed a lot of people. Oh yeah, it was Samuel who killed the king, Agag the king of the Malachites, after he worshiped God. Like the fear that both Samuel and Saul created around them. I mean, you wonder why Saul's ki- uh, Samuel's kids were, were prideful, arrogant, pride uh, bribe takers? Because they lived in a culture of fear that their father had created. He had raised them in a culture that said, you obey the voice of God, quote, you obey my voice because I am God. I speak for God. And if you don't obey me, I will crush you. And out of rebellion, they find out, well, dad, you know, we can take bribes. Dad doesn't know. He's not really God. God doesn't, you know, God doesn't really care. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, I know, I know it's a whole sub story, but listen, Samuel and Saul both created cultures of fear around them so much so that the reputation was if you got Samuel upset, he'd kill you. And if you got Saul upset, he'd kill you. So Samuel shows up in the role of priest to the town of Bethlehem and the elders, all the leaders of all the wealthy families. And some of them are father and sons from the same families, right? Firstborn sons. Their response to Samuel's arrival is, are you here to kill us? That's in, that's crazy to me. That blows my mind. Do you come in peace? Samuel's like, yes. 
in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. <laughs> he has to assure them, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to kill a cow. Ta-da! So, he's like, consecrate yourselves and come sacrifice with me. Then consecrate. He, cons he Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them specifically to the sacrifice. So there's a there's there's clearly a lot of communication that's taken place. He invites, um, he tells all the elders, consecrate yourselves, come to the sacrifice of me. So all the important people are invited, and then he goes and consecrates Jesse and his sons, which is means he goes to Jesse's house, and he probably, you know, he makes sure that they're clean and everybody takes a bath and and everybody's anointed with smelly perfume oils so that everybody smells good and they all get right with God. And the Samuel has come at this time is probably when Samuel tells Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king of, of Israel. I'm going to anoint him. So they all know what's going on at this sacrifice. And a sacrifice of this size would have involved a huge meal like again this is not this doesn't happen in a matter of hours this happened in days samuel arrives are you here to kill us no i come in peace i come to sacrifice okay listen i want everybody there i want all of you to consecrate yourselves all come to the to sacrifice jesse i'm coming to your house because i'm gonna you know i'm going to personally make sure that you are and your boys are are consecrated so they go to that house and they, you know, they spend the day doing that. And then because everybody's getting together and it's a big cow, right? It's going to be a, it's going to be a big old feast. So the, the men and, and women servants are running around. The wives are running around They're They're gathering their roots and their vegetables and they're putting together the breads and the, and the wine. And they're, this is going to be a big, in essence, celebration for the house of Jesse. And Jesse's kind of footing the bill and throwing the party. I mean, they're not all in his house, but they're all going to be like the town is going to celebrate. This is a big deal. So Jesse, right, he has uh, his seven sons. Uh, all seven of them are at this thing. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about about this whole deal. He has seven sons, which is a huge, huge cultural sign that God loves you. I, I mean, I, I, that's, whether it's, whether it's true or not, I mean, God loves you anyways, but it's easy, right? To look at people that are wealthy and say, God loves them more. God's given them more. God's, God, um, you know, the blessings are on them more like, and then often we'll look at them and we'll say, God, why don't you love me that much? Why haven't you given me that kind of money? Why didn't you give me that kind of success? Well, that happened crazy amounts when it came to the life of Jesse, because Jesse kept having sons. Sons were, uh, un uh, culturally, they were considered way more valuable than daughters. Not according to God. Not if you look at the garden of Eden, there is clearly 
equality when it comes to value between the genders as far as God's perspective is. This is not God's perspective on men and women. This was culturally the the perspective on men and women. Jesse had seven sons. This is huge. Huge. Now, with all the blessings that keeps pouring out on Jesse, the town of Bethlehem and the elders in Bethlehem and the tribute, like the rumor mills of the nation, they all knew how many sons Jesse had. This was, this was a huge deal. But they also knew and they looked for a little flaw that maybe, maybe Jesse's not quite as good as his seven sons seem to indicate. Why would that happen? Oh, well, because you see, Jesse <laughs> comes, his wife comes from the line of Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. And Moabites were terrible people. They were not God's chosen people. Yeah. This little ditty, this little background of Jesse is a big deal. And so Jesse, after having seven sons and got, getting a little old, he's looking at this purebred Jewish girl who's been in their house probably since she was 10 and has been the maidservant to his wife. And she's now probably 15 or 16. And he says to himself, all right, I'm going to get rid of my first wife who bore me seven sons. And I'm going to marry this younger girl who is a purebred. And I'm going to have a, you know children through her so that people will stop questioning my bloodline. So he, he makes arrangements for this to occur. And this can occur in the Jewish slash Hebrew law. Things have been written that if your wife was, you know, seen as less than pure Jewish blood, you could um, marry somebody who was so that your line would continue to be pure Jewish blood. So he makes arrangements to marry the servant girl. Now, this is Jesse really giving into the judgment of others. It's, it's Jesse giving into the fear of man. It's Jesse looking at his, at his first seven sons and saying, all right, that's not enough. I, this is, this is a, this is a huge thing. The fear of man, right? He, he knows that he is clearly blessed by God and clearly honored by man, but not quite honored enough. This hideous rumor that maybe, you know, he's not quite all of what he's supposed to be is a is something that haunts him. So he goes through this whole deal of making arrangements to get married to the to the servant girl. But the servant girl, now I, I know this is not in the Bible. I know it's not in the Bible, but 
when you do research, you read stuff. This is this is this storyline has been handed down through Jewish rabbis, which is an incredibly trustworthy source when it comes to narratives. Because from the Jewish perspective, the Bible is written as an outline to a larger story. And the story is maintained orally through the teachers of of the Bible. And so the opportunity to interact with the Word of God is so much greater in the Jewish tradition because that's what you do. You interact with the story of God. And it is his story that you constantly review and interact with. So this is where all of this is coming from. In the Jewish realm, I think it's called a midrash, although I don't know if I've ever heard a Jewish person say the word, so I may be saying it incorrectly, but it's there. So he makes arrangements to marry this girl. The girl is absolutely... Like she loves her her master. She loves the woman that she works for and she does not want to hurt the woman she works for. So she makes arrangements to switch places with Jesse's wife on the first night. She, she basically says, you sleep with them. And so they, they switch places, which is kind of crazy. And it happens multiple times in scripture that the first night the guy sleeps with somebody and doesn't know who they are. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that completely culturally. I know sometimes they were plastered drunk. Sometimes they were in the dark, like pitch darkness. Um, I know some cultural slash Jewish traditions, basically the woman is in a, for lack of a better term, a full body covering except for the one place where where the male needs to enter. That's <laughs> just funny to think about. Something drastic had to be going on for, I would think, for a man not to know who he's sleeping with. But anyways, he sleeps with his wife again and she gets pregnant with David, the eighth son of Jesse. But Jesse denies it. When it's clear that she's pregnant, he refuses to be named the father. And he ostracizes his first wife and sets her apart as as a sinner, as somebody who has slept with who knows who. Because, because he's committed to the fact that he married somebody else. So mama is pregnant with David. David is born. It's another son. Jesse refuses to accept him as a son and instead raises him as a servant. This will help you make a lot of sense of David's life. So David is rejected by his father his whole life. David is rejected by his brothers as a brother. They don't treat him as a brother. They treat him as a servant. They treat him as a servant. And he's rejected by the town, from the leaders to the drunks. And we see this in Psalm 69. I believe this is what Psalm 69 is talking about. I know that 
There are those who preach this psalm as belonging to David during a different time in his life, but everything about this psalm speaks to this part of his life. And he talks about the fact that that he is mocked by the leaders and even the drunks sing songs about him. They question who he is. His identity is always in question. But this is what David understands. <laughs> David understands something really clear, right? If you if you would look at this, David always seemed to know that God loved him. Over and over and over again, David comes back to this place where he says, I know that you love me, God, right? The Psalms, over and over and over again. I, but I know that you love me. I know you haven't left me. Where did he get that? Where did he get that kind of intense understanding of God's presence? And I believe it came because of his mother. I think his mother, his mother clearly knew who David really was. And even though she did not have the rank and the authority in the family anymore, or as a woman, because they were not considered as valuable as a man, she made sure David understood that he knew that God loved him because she knew that the father was going to reject him. She knew that the brothers were rejecting him, but she also knew God wouldn't do that. She understood something about the love of God that went deep into the heart of David. And although David struggled with things throughout his life, he always knew he could come back to God because God was going to love him. And that, I believe, came from David's mom. David understood the love of his mother, even though she couldn't always show it to him because it would have been considered treachery. He understood that he could connect with God individually. He didn't need someone else to get there. And, and he practiced this in the life of a shepherd as he was trained from a young age to be a shepherd. He got encouragement with visions and dreams from his mom. And he made friends, deep, amazing friends, amongst the servants and other shepherds of, the, of, of his society, of in the culture, the immediate culture around Bethlehem, which would have included an awareness of this crazy city called Jerusalem, that even though the whole nation belonged to Israel, Jerusalem belonged to a completely different tribal. Uh, people. It was so highly defended and almost impenetrable. But there was something about the city of Jerusalem that David knew deep down. I believe he saw dreams in which the city of Jerusalem would belong to God again, that it would belong to the people of God again. And I can go into that a little bit more later, but David, I think, just he lived a life of rejection from men, generally speaking, and a life of love and acceptance from God always. He lived a life in which his father rejected him and his mother did her best to protect him and give him some awareness of where he could go to not be rejected. And that was to God and to his peers, to his servants, his fellow servants and shepherds. And, and when David would play, he'd play in such a way that I'm sure his father was proud of him, but he couldn't accept it. He could not believe or even say that David was his because it would mean that his plan didn't work. 
and that he had yet another son that, quote, was not of pure blood, a pure bloodline. Regarding the religious, religious, or legal, legalistically minded leaderships in, and elders in Israel. But David knew God loved him. He interacted with heaven both in dreams, in visions, and in, uh, and in song. He learned to, to not just interact here on earth. I believe David had deep mystical experiences in the fields. And, and in essence, God spoke with him in such a way that David knew his voice. And he interacted with heaven. And he got, he got his, uh, his not authority, uh, not attribute, not attributes. Come on, Bob. His affirmation. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, Bob, helping me out there in the engineering room. His affirmation came from heaven. And that kind of pattern where you interact with heaven, where you are literally raptured into heaven or enraptured into heaven, these these experiences that he would have in the fields uh, as a shepherd boy and as a young man, that kind of interaction allows David the rest of his life to overcome all experiences slash circumstances because even if he's caught up in the circumstance even if in the you know in in the moment or in the hours in which he's being in these crazy life experiences he's always able to to find that higher perspective he is always able to get to that place where he says okay but i'm aware of the fact that god loves me and because I'm loved, I can do this. Because I'm loved, I, I can give up the throne. I don't have to kill my enemies. I, don't, I, can, I can step away and do the right thing. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. That's why I kind of wanted to sit here for a few minutes. Because understanding where David's coming from will really be a theme that will, that will be woven into the rest of the way that he presents his life as we walk through it over the next hours. <laughs> I have no idea how long this podcast is going to last. <laughs> but man, he is an amazing man because of that. His heart, his spirit, his mind understood something about being loved by God that most people in his day had no clue, and it contrasts the atmosphere of fear that Saul had created. And that's a big, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer when it comes to the nation. It's a game changer when it comes to uh, the, way things are, the way things are presented and the, and the, and the decisions that are made in, in Saul's life. And I uh, saw, no, sorry, and in, David, in David's life. All right, so uh, it's been a while. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna end there and just I'm gonna pick up um, on the next round with um, the where Samuel actually anoints David, and um, David ends up interacting with uh, Saul a little bit. 
Um, and then we'll just roll from there. All right. Awesome. Have a great day. Talk to you again soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the epic narrative if you have questions for bob or would like to reach out for booking please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com if you haven't already please subscribe to the epic narrative podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded see you next week for another chapter in our story on the epic narrative <laughs>